0: I decided like I was on assignment. I was and I was working. And so I would get up in the morning early to go out and photograph and I would photograph all day and then in the evening I would go out and photograph. So I was like always on.
1: Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today, the polymath, author, and futurist Kevin Kelly comes back on the show. You might recall our conversation about vagabonding Asia way back in episode 29 of this podcast. That conversation actually formed the basis of a chapter in The Vagabond's Way entitled Invent a Mission, Then Plan Your Travels Around It. Specifically, I wrote about Kevin's decision to explore Asia through his love of photography and how that mission and passion made his trip more engaged and dynamic. Now, a good 50 years after Kevin first set out to travel across Asia, he's published a three-volume photo book called Vanishing Asia, which vividly illustrates the way the world is changing and how a journey inevitably puts the traveler into a conversation with both the past and the future. Kevin talks about his original motivations for travel and how the journeys that resulted amounted to a self-directed master's degree in Asia studies. We talk about how taking photos was different in the pre-digital era, when many travelers didn't even carry a camera, and each picture cost the equivalent of $5 to develop in print, which made choosing what to photograph a very careful process. We talk about the way other cultures allow you to see the idiosyncrasies of your own culture and how travelers from the same culture can form intense bonds with each other on the road. A lot of our conversation revolves around how getting a sense for how we might live in the future involves understanding how we as humans have lived in the past and how even the things we consider to be new are in fact continuous with things that are much older and more traditional. We talk about how electronics have come to structure our travels in the 21st century and how artificial intelligence will come to affect our journeys in the future. Kevin talks about how technologies are being developed that will one day replicate smells in the same way that cameras can depict sights, a phenomenon Kevin calls smell-o-vision. We start by talking about the personal connections that first took Kevin to Asia after he'd finished high school. Let's listen in. How did you, as a young man, find this mission?
0: Well, first of all, I grew up. In New Jersey, and I have great difficulty conveying to my kids how parochial the world was in 1960s, 50s, and 60s when I was growing up um, in New Jersey, and how um, even though we were close to New York City, um, it was not. Cosmopolitan, I, I didn't do any traveling at all. My, my father didn't, didn't really even believe in vacations. And so um, m- the extent of my knowledge about the uh, rest of the world was National Geographic. Hmm. Um, I had never eaten Chinese food, um, never used chopsticks. I mean, it was just – I mean, I don't eat in a restaurant, I think, three times before I graduated from high school. In any restaurant? In any restaurant. Wow. Yes. Yes. So, so, um, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. My mom, that was through a job was making a meal every night. And we went through a little, we had a kind of like a little schedule of different <laughs> Thursdays were certain things, Fridays were certain things. And so, um, um, I felt like really very, very parochial. So, um, there were two, there were two, Outliers in that kind of very parochial, closed, um, local view. And that was um, my father's friend from the Army was someone who wound up um, being on some of the first um, landings of the U.S. soldiers onto Japan after it surrendered. Hmm. And um, he wound up marrying a a Japanese woman. And he... um, come to visit and tell me these incredible stories about japan and it was like it was it was so different and so alien that 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 i thought "Hmm, well maybe someday i might be able to to see that and then the second one was um my best friend from high school was uh, studying to become a missionary um and went to taiwan to learn chinese and he um, had kind of a standing invitation to me to visit him. The third thing was I was reading um, The Leaves of Grass, a book of poetry, basically, by Walt Whitman, And okay. something, something, while I was reading it, something happened to my brain. And I had this overwhelming urge for the first time in my life to travel. Hmm. My journey then was um i got this idea that i was going to photograph um these exotic places and i when i'd never really been out of new england you know out of, out, of, out of you know i was i'd been into new jersey and new york and massachusetts and that was it and so um um i actually was so confident that I actually i called up national geographic and I found an editor there and I said, I'm going to Taiwan with my camera. Do you need any pictures?
1: How old were you, Kevin, at this point?
0: I was like right out of high school. I was, you know, it's probably 18, 19. Uh huh. Uh uh-huh. And I decided I want to, you know, be a uh, National Geographic photographer. Uh mm-hmm. huh. And um, he was very generous. Bruce McElfrish was his name. I still remember. He was very generous and said, well, you know, that's not quite how it works. But I tell you this, when you get back, come show me your, 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 your pictures, which I did. And he was, he, was, he, was, um, he was, you know, true to that. At some point, I was just about maybe 20. I arrived in Taiwan in 1972, um, which is basically 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. And my I, my mind was blown. every Every day, every hour, there was something new and interesting. And the way Taiwan was, like a lot of Asian countries, things happened out on the street. Mm-hmm. And so everything was visible, how things were made, how things were done. Their sense of um, privacy was very different. So I could kind of like walk into almost anything and they were fine they were kind of welcoming and so it was like this it was like going to a different planet and then as i went on from there um to other places that were far more less developed it literally became like a time machine Hmm. and so um that's how it began in the beginning i was just i wasn't even sure what i was photographing i was there to thinking i was going to photograph but i didn't know what that meant i wouldn't i didn't know and i was just photographing kind of the stuff that interests me and it took me a long time to kind of figure out what that was exactly.
1: Well, in, in Vanishing Asia in the introduction to Vanishing Asia, you use the phrase time travel. Um, and I want to, I want to touch on some aspects of that, but I'm curious to know just at the very beginning, how did y- having a camera and using a camera change the way you traveled?
0: Mm. Yeah. For me, it's like a crutch in a certain sense. Um, it's an excuse to see. It's an, it's, a, it's an excuse to get up and go out. So I, I took eventually after my first trip, or even kind of about even maybe i have say a month into the first trip, I decided like I was on assignment. I was and I was working. And so I would get up in the morning early to go out and photograph. And I would photograph all day. And then in the evening, I would go out and photograph. So I was, like, always on. And I was like, I'm on assignment. I have to see everything. I have to record this. And um, that kind of um, a drive to, like, so I didn't hang around the pool. I wasn't partying. I wasn't relaxing on the beach. I was like photographing, working every minute of the day. I mean, I never took time off. I was always huh. photographing. And that was a a means to see as much as I possibly could and to keep looking.
1: Your day was structured by photographs, but I think you mentioned maybe 70 photos a day is what you actually yeah. took. Right. So how did the how did the fact that you only had so many images to take in a day how did that affect this because I think some listeners right, right. who might themselves be in their late teens or 20s might think oh well you know how hard can that be so
0: having yeah, a film yeah. camera how did this affect that trip Yeah so so um I brought the you know my backpack had um all my savings which was in film with um in these little canisters I had and at one point I had when I set off for one of my trips, I had five hundred rolls of film, and I was bringing the film because you couldn't buy film. I had to take it all with me, hmm. and the final cost of developing the film and then later on developing the film, in today's dollars it was about five dollars a shot so okay. each each wow. exposure. It was costing me basically the equivalent of $5, and it's limited. In other words, I have to bring whatever I'm going to bring. So I became fairly careful about what I was photographing. Part of what I was photographing, were I was trying to photograph the things that I felt were not going to be around for long. Hmm. My rule of thumb, which is a, something I aspire to in this kind of photography, street photography, was... Um, I'm only going to take the picture again if I think it's better than the last one I took. Hmm. So unlike you know, like today with a phone, you're just taking so almost at random, but you're kind of like taking a, a video almost. You're so many of them. You're not. You don't have to think about it like that. But when working with film, I have to. I have to say, I'm only going to take the next one if I feel that actually it's better than the last one. And of course, the thing I want to remind all those youngsters out there is that there was no screen there was no way to there was no screen so so did i did i get it last time well it was kind of like in that flash when i'm did i which i'm trying to remember did i get it and was the exposure perfect was the focus perfect i'm hoping so but i have to remember so th- is if is it worth to take another one or not and um so there was a sense of which this was all being done on the fly and there was no review going back to see whether it was in focus and exposed or not and those man, those were manual focus and manual exposures and
1: you look you were looking through a viewfinder and yep. then you press the button and you might see the picture months later
0: right yep months later sometimes even years later and so um that's a very poor way to learn by the way (laughs) you say it was a poor way to learn
1: i'm curious what kind of lessons even hard lessons you learned early on um you you've called you called it in the introduction to vanishing az sort of your your university experience yeah wandering through you sort of had a self-directed master's degree in asia studies and so Mm -hmm. what did you what did you learn the hard way at first well
0: so setting aside my little assignment to photograph, I learned everything else about the world um, because, um, first of all, I, I've always had a kind of interest in how things are made or done, and in Taiwan and Japan, um, both at that time, were kind of already producing a lot of the things that were being sold in in, in you know at home mm-hmm. in, in the U.S. and. You could wander around and wander, and they were all being made in kind of not huge, big factories, but little factories that were in people's garages. Hmm. And you could kind of walk in and just see how, literally, how things were being made. So that was one level of education of just seeing the world... um, the kind of infrastructure of the world. And then, and then the other thing was Taiwan was at that very moment undergoing very, very rapid development. And so literally even within my own initial visits, there was a rice field. And then the next day there, there was a next week, next year there were, you know, apartments or condos or machinery or an office. I mean, it was just developing so fast that, Again, I could witness and see before my eyes and have a visual movie of how things developed, how progress happened, how things were actually made in infrastructural ways. You know, how a road and how highways are done. I mean, everything was visible and they were in the middle of constructing it and that was later extended to the rest of asia where these worlds the the, the, con- the continuum from an undeveloped medieval agricultural world to a city you, you would just see that process in motion and then um there's you know the the general lesson of um seeing other people's values and different cultures and having to kind of have the opportunity to look at your own out from outside and inspect things in a kind of um a way that um it's hard when you you're in the middle of it and so that kind of remove that distancing that you get from being in another culture allows you to look at your own culture and the kind of education you get from seeing the world from a different viewpoint um, is incredibly powerful.
1: Well, you have a video essay called The Joy of Differences. um, And one of the lines from it is you talk about how when I face what is different, I can finally see me. Uh, You talk about how... Uh, ordinary things seem incredible. Incredible things become ordinary after a while. So yeah. what did, how did you see yourself? How did you finally see yourself
0: when you took this yeah. extended journey? Well, one of the things that, that, um, it's sort of becomes clear is, um, you know, uh, I, I, I understood how American I was hmm. and, and, and inescapably American. It's like, yeah, I, I'm American. Uh, some of the things America does and believes are things that I'm not necessarily proud of, but I am I can't escape that. It's like I I am I've been I was formed by those my my view is is that I can modify it to some extent, but I'm just yeah, it's kind of like it's my mold. And so becoming aware of that and that kind of it's kind of like being self-aware a little bit. It's like self-awareness can help um, lots of things, and it can help you grow. But there's also a certain sense where you have to kind of acknowledge, basically, what it is that you are. This not really changeable in a certain sense. Um, and, and it was kind of weird in, in, in a way that that even now, today, I find strange, which is when you're traveling you do meet other travelers and um in in a certain sense i got to see and meet people that i would never have ever met in new jersey in the suburban area that was and and actually travel with them for a while but what was interesting to me still today is that there is you know some of the best times and the best friends i have are still american
1: Hmm.
0: in the sense that um it was always easier to be around Americans because I'm American and I would see the same thing if, you know, I'm growing up. If you're German, I'm sure you find it easier to be around Germans. And that's because there's so much that you have in common. It makes you share a sense of humor. I mean, there's just so many more things that you start off with that. It's just easier that you're, uh, you're more inclined. And so, um, that was sort of something that i became aware of of that i learned about myself which is that um my you know i'm not just a general average i'm not just cosmopolitan which i hope to be but i am at, at the root you know an american just because that's how i grew up
1: i would imagine there's an extent to which you're bonding with other travelers because you're sharing this experience, this extraordinary experience of otherness that uh, people who lived there, they weren't, ex- they were at home. They weren't experiencing yeah. something extraordinary.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah, and, 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 um, and, and you're right, because there is a camaraderie among travelers. Um, after my first uh, extended trip to Taiwan and Japan, I came back. I remember because I I, I I had only enough money to get to San Francisco. I didn't, I didn't even have enough money to get home. Mm-hmm. So I was going to hitchhike uh, home. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I remember getting in the, the, the first couple of cars after this amazing trip, and I just felt like I want to tell you about what I just saw, but it literally is impossible for me to mm-hmm. convey it to you and I felt that kind of, um, I missed the camaraderie of all the other travelers who understood. They understood the, the amazing differences and this amazing um, privilege of having seen these things. But nobody there even, I, I felt like I was couldn't even convey to them the scale and the power of what I'd just seen. Um, And so there is a camaraderie with other travelers because they are they kind of like it's like a secret club. They understand um, that there is this sort of (laughs) this other this other thing going on in the world that's beyond just your sort of day to day life in a very isolated place, which is America.
1: Yeah, no. I, I think uh, uh, I pinpoint that as in the new book as communitas—the idea that you're sharing this task in ways that you wouldn't at home, and you might end up bonding with an American or a German or an Israeli or an Australian yeah. on the far side of the world in a way you wouldn't if
0: you were in your home habits. Yes, I think that's true, um, and and we, you know, um, one of the myths is that, is that you know I I was a solo traveler in the sense that I. Um, I was making kind of my own decisions about where to go, but I usually was traveling with somebody else and mm. kind of a pickup thing. You know, like you're you're you meet someone and for a week you're on the same path, or you know for at least a couple of days you're, you're visiting the same things. And so, um, so even solo travel is hard to escape. Kind of, you know, buddying up with someone for a while and getting to know them and become very close, even for that very short time.
1: Did, did your travel companions ever get irritated by your compulsion to take photographs?
0: Um, they were amused by it. Hmm. Um, um, because most travelers, believe it or not, then did not have a camera. I mean, I absolutely, I met, Oh, I mean, it was very rare for someone to have a, a camera traveling back then because it was a hassle. It was because you need a film. You need to carry all this film. It was, it was just um, very, very unusual. There were a couple of people who might've had a camera and they were kind of occasionally, you know, maybe once a day, maybe taking a snap or something. My, my brother had one um, that he occasionally would use it was kind of like a rangefinder thing. So, so it was actually very, very unusual. I, I, I claim I was often at times maybe the only person within a hundred miles that would have had a camera. Wow. Huh. And I would, I would be at these big, massive spectacles and be literally the only person with a camera.
1: Well, you had this mission, um, either solo or with your travel companions, to capture what seemed different or what seemed vanishing and i'm wondering if there's anything that you didn't quite recognize as vanishing because when i look back on my photos of my travels in asia in the 90s and the early 2000s i i regret that i don't have any pictures of internet cafes or sony walkmans <laughs> <laughs> which which i would not which are not you know traditional things but they are very much less common now so um yeah. Are there some things that you wish you'd taken photographs of, little little technological moments that you didn't think to, to capture?
0: Um, yes, and that is, um, and, and it's not just the kind of technological things. I, When I was not photographing, were all those little details. Here was my definition of the photograph that I wanted. I wanted to take a photograph where it was clear that it could not have been taken anywhere else. Hmm. It was so rooted in a place that, the, from the costumes, to the architecture, to the botanical thing, to what was happening, everything was so specific that it could have only been taken right then and right there. And there was no no doubt about it. But there were lots of little things, details, as you suggest, you know, things that people did or weird things. Weird, um, what Jan Chipchase calls these norms of weird things that, you know, hotel would, have just kind of strange little oddities that I didn't photograph. And I regret that I didn't spend my $5 Hmm. (laughs) taking a picture of that. And uh, later on, when, um, when I kind of knew I was missing those, um, and then when digital came along, I did begin to take those photographs, Hmm. um, of, of stuff. And, um, uh, because I, I, because also, I think also, as years went on, I had an appreciation that they were also going to um, or could also vanish. And and by the way, one of the things that I was trying to do at Wired that I didn't do until later was I wanted to photograph workplaces huh. in um, the beginning of the digital era um, and having people sit at their desks and get, get that. And that also radically changed. And I didn't do enough of that because um, those workplaces, you know, sitting in front of this huge fat, you know, huge box that was your that was your computer.
1: Mm-hmm, right. Yeah.
0: You know, and, and the big clunky boxes and the big keyboards and the big, uh, you know, drives on the desk and everything. And they've all kind of gone away. Uh, but people had decorations on top of those they use that real estate and that was all kind of very ephemeral and very dated um and um so this idea of kind of documenting the things that we don't see rick prelinger has this thing of lost um, landscapes of home movies And, and and the value of the home movies is that it's not what's it's not in the front it's all the stuff in the background that all the signs the signages that nobody photographs because it's all background but the background is the stuff that is sort of the most telling and i wasn't photographing the background stuff and and i learned over time to kind of do a little bit more Mm -hmm. of that
1: well it's interesting that you mention Wired magazine because often you're described as a futurist, but uh, the vanishing AG project vanishing Asia project is very much about the past vestiges of the past um, images of continuity versus these urbanization changes um and so what was the tension between the past and I think you said in the in in the book sometimes Asia is seen as a vision of the future now
0: yeah yeah um One of the things, the more I became interested in the future, the more I became interested in the past. Hmm. And um, most of the really good futurists that I know are really good historians as well. And that's because most of the stuff in the future is going to be the stuff in the the past. It's going to be today. So, you know, 90% or I mean, I would say even more 99% of the stuff 100 years from now there's going to be stuff that's that we know about that maybe the very same stuff as today the streets are not going to change and they could be they haven't streets rarely are moved so the so the layout of new york city is going to look exactly the same in 100 years from now and most of the buildings that you go down the street are are going to be exactly the same buildings and concrete and plumbing or not going away they get buried and covered over but they're most of the stuff that we're surrounded by today is is very old technology and old stuff and so looking at the past gives you a pretty good idea of um where things are going and um and so I spend so, so I found that that was really useful. And part of what I saw in the past, where I could see in Asia was was the kind of a, the momentum, the, the, the qualities that weren't going to be changing, the, 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 the general drift of things. And those are important because they, they continue. My colleague Stuart Brand has this pace layering diagram which is that um, the, all the fast-moving stuff like fashions and, um, you know, Twitter are, are, are kind of dependent on things that move a little slower, like, you know, like, um, you know, culture things. And then below that are kind of infrastructural things, which take a really long time to build but also last a long time. So you have this very slow-moving change at at the basis of things. And so that was one of the things I kind of got from my time in Asia. And um, while I could see some of the fast, instant cities being built in in Asia, you know, it's like Shenzhen, going from a village to the size of New York City in 20 years. Hmm. Um, But at the core of it were, were these fundamental things about what makes a city work and, oh, and the kind of space that you need or want to keep. And, and those came from, you know, seeing lots of cities that were working very well. You know, what Ale- Chris Alexander calls the pattern language. You could see the pattern languages happening with a sense of history. So for me, whenever I try to think about the future, like say right now, I just did a piece for wired on AI image generators, um, trying to figure out the make sense about them. So, so these are these things, AIs that you give a text prompt to, you, you give it some instructions about what you want to make, and it will create a photo or a painting of that just from your command. Huh. And, it's, and it's like, it's amazing how accurate and, and, detail the stuff is and so the question is what does this mean what does it mean to human artists are they going to lose their jobs or how are we going to use this Um, who controls it when who's responsible for what it generates Um, is is it ripping off um human artists in order to be trained and so there's all these questions and i find that the best way to kind of think about it is to think about the history of photography and the way it impacted painting and its own Hmm. and cinema. And so going back into history, um, helps understand the, it's one of the best things to help understand the future and where we're going.
1: Yeah. I think it, it really pinned the visual aspect of travel. I write about this in the Vagabond's way, the idea that, um, the idea of the picturesque isn't that old. It doesn't predate photography that much. The idea that you should be looking for images as travelers. Um, and then suddenly the, the camera rose in the 19th century. And now it's sort of the first thing that we do as travelers. We look for images.
0: Right. And um, I actually recently was, was using some of these AI generators to, to do some some travel uh, paintings. And, uh-huh. um, it, and, and so my hypothesis would be with these AI generators... Is that the image part of traveling will will have will begin to have less value because there's just I can, there's already you know probably half a million pictures of the Golden Gate Bridge right I mean no one really needs to take another one you, you could the AI can generate one any angle you want any uh, weather conditions any lighting conditions huh. and so I think what will replace that will be these experiences and, and memories and 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 things that are that the the kind of the souvenir of the image is less important because you can generate them hmm. anytime you want to better than you could standing there, including having it you know, me standing in front of the Golden Gate Bridge, it'll do that as well. And so um so I think over time, it was not going to happen instantly, but I think over time we're going to see a little de-emphasis hmm. in that kind of the visual souvenir and other kinds of experiences will will or for souvenirs will have to replace it.
1: Well, here's an aside: Do you think AI will will ever be able to replicate smells? Because it feels like smells is one yes.
0: of those yes. real basic "I am here" type senses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, there are people who are working on. Smell-O-Vision, I think they were calling it one time. <laughs> and what? And, and just like, you know, it's like the way that we replicated um, visuals is we realized that, you know, there were these primary colors and that if you have a little pixel of those three primary colors next to each other, you could kind of fake with those three primitive colors, you know, magenta and cyan and... Um, uh, you know, yellow. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the three different ones, you know, red, blue and green, uh, red, green and um, red, blue and green for, for video. Anyway, those three are the three primitives that can make visuals. Well, there, there's been attempts to, to get at the, um, like the 25 primitive smells hmm. and that by recombining them in a machine, that you could de- generate any close enough to any other smell mm-hmm. and that and so they have these things that, where they're trying to do that so that on command you have these different smells and i think there's in vr world that that would certainly be a optional <laughs> package at some point a little you know something you wear on on your headset which would generate smells on command if you were kind of walking into a musty place or a swampy place, or you needed to have something smell like the new car smell. Mm. And so, um, uh, yes, I think that might be part of the future.
1: Yeah. I've always sort of found comfort in the idea that smell can't be replicated. We've always, we need to physically travel because you can replicate images and sounds, but not smell. But that, that'll that's be not going to be true. That's yeah. not going to be
0: true for, for long. No, you can. Hmm. Um, and, um, you know the question is whether they could ever do it in a kind of a solid state right now it would require replenishing those 25 vials and and that's kind of the, the holdup but mm-hmm. it might be um, something where where they could actually generate them too at the same time um, you know molecularly generate them um, so uh, so I, I would say I wouldn't say never I would say sometime in the future they would definitely be able to have smell of vision
1: hmm I'm, I'm curious about patterns because in, in your Vanishing Asian books, you often have entire pages versus ver, of, mm-hmm. of patterns, like how people's hair are, are or yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how food is served, or how food is balanced when it's uh-huh. taken to the market, which I thought that was interesting. It's, it's, more, it's less of you trying to impose a narrative on what you saw, and it's more you cataloging right, right. categories right. of what you saw. Right. So what was the decision to to catalog Vanishing Asia in the way that you did?
0: That's a good question. Um, I think you know those patterns that you saw were part of the things that was not photographing in the beginning. I was because it wasn't worth the five dollars for each shot, right? Um, and something I did more of as I went along because I thought that some of those things were also disappearing or might disappear, and they were kind of interesting. Um, I think it was an attempt to convey what I would call like the texture of and and also what I later on saw as alternative design solutions. It's this idea that um, some of these design solutions of of a way to deal with um, how food is served might be useful as we think about alternative ways in the future. Burning Man, for me, was this magnificent attempt to try and figure out how you do Instant cities, how you do urban planning, how you do spectacle. But there are things like the Kumela in India, which have been doing that alternative track. And they may have certain lessons about how we want to do instant cities or huge spectacles. There's there's some patterns there that might be useful for us when we go into the future and want to think about how we do um, urban transportation, which... It's not just big cars or big buses or walking. There's these alternatives in, in Asia where these little tiny cars, little tiny, tiny things that are basically built around motor scooters or motorcycles, but could be even smaller than that. And there might be some design solutions that will be useful in the future for ways of thinking and making alternatives.
1: Do you ever think about what might be vanishing now? Is this yeah. something that that changes? Is it something you look for at home, for example?
0: Yeah, I was just mentioning earlier that you know this idea of uh, documenting um, workspaces around the wired offices because I saw that they were changing so fast. I yes, I, I, I think people don't realize how dated her own environments are going to look mm. in twenty years from now. You, you take a picture of wherever you are right now, and in 20 years from now, it'll be incredibly dated. Oh, that was so 2022, and or 2023, I guess that's where we are. And so, um, um, and, and so, I, I, I think yes, I, I think um, it would. I've often thought about a really great photography project would just be to go around and photograph the background stuff wherever we are the background in the city or the background by the background i mean like you know the signs that are up the um the markings you know the colors of the paints on the nondescript office park all that kind of stuff that is the stuff that's really really dated that will date things because it's going to change and so um that that background stuff is the stuff that actually changes and we don't even notice it. And if you want to do something interesting, you can record it because it's going to go away. And and, and I'm kind of more mindful of that now that, um, you know, uh, not just hairstyles, but it's all the other style stuff that we do, this fashionable things that are trendy, those are the things that are going to go with TikTok. You know, TikTok will be like, whoa, that's so. 2023 and 2022. That was the twenties, man. Uh, And that's, (laughs) that's going to go away really fast. What about for,
1: for people who, for whom TikTok is the water they swim in? um, How can they, in a, in a certain sense, anything photographic is about how you pay attention and what you pay attention to. Um, And so how can some equivalent
0: 19 year old embark on their own project now? what yeah 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 that's that's really great so here's my advice for that is as much as you are able you want to be working on something where there's no name for what it is that you're do or doing and there's not language for what it is that you're doing and so that's does several things one is is it's is, Closer to is a closer, more of a chance is likely to be distinctively yours, and it's also um, you have more of a chance to be something that will become that will be that the world will become that will move towards, and so um, you know I remember when you know TikTok was first I think it was called Musically, hmm. and um, I had my friend's daughter was doing it. It was mostly lip syncing and it was this thing where they were kind of lip sync songs and stuff and it's like what what is that and there was like no real words it was like, it was tiktokking but it was <laughs> you know there wasn't that word and it was unknown but there is a sense in which um if you're young and trying to do things you want to be working on something that that we don't have names for that it's not already set into a pattern And it's identifiable. You want to kind of work with your own unique set of talents. And if you're really truly doing that, you're going to be working on something that's not been seen before. We don't maybe have languages, words to to describe exactly what it is. And you're having trouble telling people what it is. That's good. That's a good sign. And that's sort of what you want to kind of focus on.
1: Well, that in mind, uh, I might just end by asking, where does your journey go next? What passions are you going to channel? <laughs> and does it involve more vanishing vestiges of places like Asia? Yeah. Um,
0: so my interest has been um, for this year, is, to, besides the book on advice, is um, I'm trying to generate um, a set of scenarios for a hundred-year future that I like to live in. So, a desirable, um, optimistic view of a high tech future in 100 years, a future filled with AI and genetic engineering and tracking and VR, that is a world that I want to live in or that other people would want to live in. A desirable world, not the dystopian. Hmm world of Hollywood, where the AIs take over and kill us, but um, a world in which all these technological things continue to advance, and we want to live in it. And so that's my project for this year. Is um, I call it Protopia. It's a, hundred, it's a desirable 100-year future, and um, uh, it's harder than it sounds, because it's much easier to imagine all the downsized to a lot of these technologies and harder to imagine how they actually make a world that we want to live in.
1: This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including information about Kevin Kelly's decade-spanning photo book, Vanishing Asia, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.